Thank you, first of all, for uh, all of your greetings. I literally had dozens of texts and Facebook things yesterday because it was my birthday yesterday, and uh, thank you so much for that, all of you. Um, And so, uh, yeah, my our kids have bought us two tickets to go up and see the top, the London on the top of the Shard, oh, wow. which we're not going to do tomorrow. I'm going to get better before I go do that. Yeah. But that's great. I love. I, I'd kind of, I'd said I'd something I want to do, but they bought us tickets to do it, so that's wonderful. Um, other things that are happening is that, um, just to let you know that Elim, that the Elim leadership, particularly our local area leadership, have asked me to take on a rather wider responsibility in our area of Essex, uh, or our corner of Essex, let's say. So um, um, that will mean some change this year, so that as uh, the months go by, you will probably get into more of a rhythm that I'll, I'll be away probably one Sunday a month serving another Elam church. Um, so that's kind of in process, but that's, that's part of... Uh, it, well, it, it's not why I've been mentoring and training up more preachers, but it, it, it's, it gives us the momentum to be able to do that and... Some of the time I'll be going out and some of the time I'll be sending out someone out on my behalf from here as, as my representative to go and help. And so so it's, 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 uh, it's an adventure and it's a responsibility and uh, I could have said no, but why would I say no? This is, this is building the Lord's kingdom and helping other churches to grow as well. So, so that's going to be happening in this year. Uh, we warned you there was change coming. We're going to be changing shape as we go along. We're going to continue today to the end of Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, I'm not going to go back over what I said last week, although I'm going to read this, the verses again. Let's, let's get into it. Here's the headline Jesus, Son of God, is greater than angels. Now that not, may, might not be something you need convincing about, but uh, for the Hebrew believers that the Apostle is writing to, they needed to hear this. And connected with the thought of being greater than angels, he, Jesus' gospel is greater than the Torah, the, the law of Moses. Because the law of Moses was given, so we'll see in a few minutes, through angels. But the gospel came through Jesus. So the word of Jesus is greater than the word of angels. Let's read it through. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation, the, 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 the impress of his nature and upholds all things by the words, the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, and oh, there's so much to say about that, but that comes later in the book. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. So I've got a bit stuck there of the previous verse. They will perish, but you remain and they all will become old like a garment and like a mantle. You will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? This passage is jam-packed with quotations from the Old Testament. I hope you noticed those were the capital letters. Every capital letter there was a quotation from the Old Testament. Mostly from the Psalms. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to refer back to all those places and look them up and go through them with you. If you've got a Bible with cross-references or if you've got some Bible software, you can look them all up and find them all out. Simply say this, the Holy Spirit spoke for the prophets and the psalmists again and again about Jesus, about the Messiah. And the apostolic writer here pulls in scriptures from many places to present his case that Jesus the Lord is greater than angels, better than angels, and therefore his word, the gospel, is greater and better than the law, than the Torah. I love the fact we sang. I did drop some heavy hints that I'd like us to learn that song, Jesus is Better. Do you think that's a good song, Jesus is Better? It's just about the kingship of Jesus. It exalts Jesus as king. And then says, in this, in that, in that, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. I've I've been ill this week, particularly since Wednesday morning. I've I've, I've been ill. And... uh, I've been praying for the Lord to heal me. But you know what I'm finding? I'm recognizing this. It isn't so much that I need healing. I need Jesus. Let's talk about angels for a minute or two. Who, what are angels? Firstly, the angel word angel was not an originally English word. It's one of those times when the Bible translators compromised. They did so many centuries even before the the English versions came in and the English versions haven't improved upon it. There's a Greek word, angelos, which means messenger. Whenever that word came up 
in translating the Bible into Latin, first of all, well before English, it got just transliterated. They turned the letters into Latin letters or then into English letters. So we now have this word angel, which isn't really an English word. It means messenger or messengers. And a human being can be a messenger, an angelos, and a heavenly being can be an angelos. And when we read the Bible, we've got to figure out which one it means. And sometimes in our Bibles, sometimes it's speaking about a human messenger, but it's put that word there, angel. And I've given in my notes some some references to those. Um, Let me tell you another example. To the angel in the church at Ephesus, write this. All right? Those are not heavenly messengers, those are the local senior leaders. Those are the messengers to the churches. In the seven churches, it's the senior leaders in those churches, the leading elder in those churches, that Jesus is addressing those letters. Because they have to deal with it. And yet it says in our English versions, to the angel of the church. And it confuses us. It's to the messenger, to the teaching elder. This section of Hebrews is definitely about the holy angels, the servants and messengers of God. They are created spirit beings who have taken a physical form appropriate to serve God's purpose at a particular time. Now I'm going to make some headlines here. I'm going to stomp on some folklore along the way. First of all, dead people do not become angels. Nor do they become stars in the cosmos. Got it? Yes. You can interrupt someone's funeral service and make some fun with them. The final destiny of every human being is either to be brought home to glorious inheritance as a child of God or to be cast out into outer darkness. Those are the only two destinies available to human beings. And the decisive factor between those two destinies is this, your relationship to Jesus Christ. Because he's the saviour. Angels are not fairies. In fact, angels do not have wings. Fairies are usually depicted as female. Most importantly, fairies don't exist. Neither are angels little cherubs. I don't know who invented these, but Renaissance paintings are full of them. Little naked babies, children with wings. The Bible speaks about cherubim who are incredibly awesome and scary creatures, but they, do, they have wings, but they're not these naked babies. They're, cherubim are mentioned in the scriptures as having bodies like lions, human-like faces and wings. And seraphim surround the very throne of God and they are fiery spirit beings that Isaiah saw. They have three sets of wings. They cover their faces with one set, they cover their feet with another set, with another set they fly. They're, they're incredible fiery spirit beings. Both cherubim and seraphim are heavenly beings. They attend the Lord in the heavenly realm. Their realm is heaven, not earth. But angels come from God to earth and back again to serve the purposes of God. That's what Jacob saw in his dream. The angels of God ascending and descending from the presence of God on a ladder or a staircase. Now I can't show you a depiction of an angel because when they appear, guess what? They look like us. No wings, no halo, 
One scripture says, when you've entertained strangers, some of you have entertained angels unaware. You put up a messenger from heaven overnight and didn't know you did. Because when they come, they'll sleep in a bed and they'll eat your breakfast and they'll say thank you very much and they'll go away. Because they take on an appearance of men. But the Bible does not describe any heavenly creature, angels, cherubim, or seraphim, as being anything less than incredibly powerful spiritual beings. They are, in fact, made of a higher order than mankind. The angels of God, when they appear to us, or when they're at work, would be very scary to us, except that God kind of turns the dial down on them. Their identity is somewhat hidden, somewhat cloaked from us. Otherwise, we'd be devastated. We understand that at some point after the creation of things and before the fall of man, Satan rebelled against the Most High and indeed a third of these heavenly beings, these angels, rebelled in enmity and warfare against God. It's in my footnotes, but let me mention it to you. The rabbis have a tradition that it was when God made Adam and told the angels they had to serve Adam, that Satan and a third of the angels rebelled. Those fallen angels are called demons in Scripture. Let me give you the statistics. One third rebelled, which means two thirds are still holy angels. The odds are on our side. Why all this about angels in this passage of scripture? Because they feature at great great events in the history of Israel. The angels were worshipping onlookers at the creation of the world. And the fact that it says all the the sons of God did that means I think the rabbis have a point that the fall of Satan took place somewhere around the creation of man. Three angels visited Abram. One was the Lord himself. Angels rescued Lot from Sodom. Angels appeared to Jacob. Angels were in attendance when the Lord appeared on Sinai and gave the law to Israel. So to a Hebrew, angels are a big deal. Because the law that they somehow, in some way, and we don't need to bother to describe how they were involved, the law that they delivered to Moses and therefore to Israel, to them, is God's great and final revelation. And then when you get into beyond the Bible times, Jewish mysticism, and particularly Kabbal and Kabbalism, not cannibalism, (laughs) Kabbalism, uh, which people like uh, Madonna and others are into, this, this, this Jewish mysticism sees God as being distant and remote, and he never really has any connection with us. But he does what he does through layers of angelic authorities, And the way to power, which is a kind of magic, is to get to know the names of these authorities and to negotiate your way with them and to climb the ranks of angelic authorities. Interestingly, there are those who theorize about demonic authorities and a similar sort of thing downwards. That kind of error is found not only in Jewish mysticism, but it's spread by Freemasonry. And then the opposite side of it, in terms of the demonic, has been taken up by something called strategic level spiritual warfare. Ever heard of that? 
It's gone out of fashion now. You see, these things come and they go. Why? Because they're not true. It's gone out of fashion. Good. We don't need the names and ranks of angels, whether holy or fallen ones, to engage with God. We only need one name, which is? Jesus. Right. So that's what these verses are punching out to us. Jesus is greater than angels, and therefore, kind of, it's, though it's not stated plainly, it comes later. The gospel is greater than the law. Amen. And the writer makes comparisons between Jesus and angels. Jesus, the Son of God, and angels who are often called the sons of God. Isn't that us? Yes, we are. We're the sons of God. We're, ch- we're the children of his being. We belong to him. He made us for himself. So angels are called sons of God. We are called sons of God. But Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is from eternity, the only begotten Son of God. Not made. Not made, created. Begotten. He was always above angels. He's their creator. They're his creatures. God never spoke words of adoption and appointment and authority as he, to angels as he does to Jesus' his son. When God brought his firstborn into the world, he commanded the angels to worship him. Worship always includes serve. Now that's significant in this way. When Jesus ruled with the Father and with the Holy Spirit before he became a babe, he was incarnate, he was made flesh. Of course the angels worshipped him. Angels gathered, angels, cherubim, seraphim, all worshipping God, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus took on flesh, the angels had to be told, he's still God, the Son. You carry on worshipping him. But they got the message because when you read in the, the Gospels the accounts of the birth of Jesus, the angels are bursting out all over the place, aren't they? Coming with messages, filling the heavens with rejoicing, you know, telling the, telling the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the um, shepherds and then a choir of angels fill the skies. You know? I mean, they got the message. You, you've to, you carry on worshipping him. Angels attended the Lord Jesus at his birth. At the end of 40 days when he'd been tempted by the devil in the wilderness, angels came and strengthened him. At his agony in Gethsemane, his prayers, angels came and strengthened him. They would have come and rescued him from the cross, you know. But he didn't ask them to. They attended his resurrection, hanging around the tomb, greeting people as they came. A bit like tour guides, really. (laughs) And it is going up from the disciples. Two men in white came and said, why are you still standing around? He's gone. He's not coming back now. Go to Jerusalem, as he said. But Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. Not by, make, not by creation, not by being made, but eternally begotten, from eternity. But then there are significant times in history, moments, when the Father has acknowledged or declared Jesus to be his son. It doesn't mean he became his son at that moment. 
It means that in that moment, he affirmed that he was his son. Right? So at his birth, by the angels of God, Jesus, God was acknowledging, this is my son born among you. At his baptism, God the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son. At his transfiguration, again, from heaven, the Father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In his resurrection and ascension, God spoke without words by raising Jesus from the dead. But the angels were in attendance. And Jesus himself is the firstborn from the dead. And it's the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus that is the key scripture, the key thing for us. Because it's, it's as if that's the day that we really should pin this statement on. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. It isn't that Jesus began to be the Son of God. He was so from all eternity. But that day, by raising him from the dead, Jesus, God has declared Jesus to be his eternal Son. Is a scripture that says a similar thing. Or, if you like Paul saying it in another way. Romans 1 verse 4. Who is declared the Son of God with power, with authority, By the resurrection from the dead, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with all authority by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus our Lord. So, Hebrews 1 is making some comparisons. The angels are called in Scripture sons of God. Yes. But Jesus is the Son of God. Angels were made. They're creatures. The Son of God is uncreated, but eternally begotten. Angels are worshippers. Jesus is the one who is worshipped. Angels are fiery servants, but the Lord is the one who is served. Lastly, angels are creatures, but Jesus is the creator. Some of you maybe have JWs that come around your door from time to time and they tell you that Jesus was in fact an angel who took on human form. You're reaching to get back to them with this, aren't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, have fun. Take my notes and work through. Angels of God may be the highest beings in creation, but Jesus is greater than because he is their creator and master. So what are angels to us? What are angels to us? Again, going to knock some skittles over as we go through here. First of all, fallen angels are real and they're scary, but they're not to be feared, not by Christians. We are indeed engaged in the struggle with hostile world leaders and elemental spirits, as Paul writes in his letters. But listen to this. Jesus dismissed demons with a word of command. With a word. Jesus has triumphed over them through the cross. Colossians 2.15. And we have died through him to their control and their influence. Colossians 2.20. Romans 8 says, Neither angels nor principalities can separate us from the love of God. Jesus promises us this. Look, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. We should not spend our time searching out the name of this demon or whatever else or the deep things of Satan. 
seeking to map or name evil powers. The weapons of our warfare are very powerful, but actually very simple. They're the ones we use all the time. Prayer, God's word, gospel preaching, showing mercy. Those are the weapons of our warfare. And remember, two-thirds of the angelic host stand with us, not against us. But best of all, the Lord, the creator of all, is with us for us. Angels do not handle our prayers. This is a common misunderstanding of the ladder or staircase and the angels that Jacob saw in a dream. Nowhere in the Bible does it have any thought that angels carry our prayers to heaven and carry the answers back. No, 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 no. That is not it. And in fact, the language and the, the lesson of Hebrews when we get into it is we have direct access to the presence of God to bring our prayers and petitions because Jesus has made that way for us. We don't need any helper. Whether it's an angel in heaven or a priest on earth, we have direct access through Jesus. Angels don't handle our prayers and angels don't heal. This is an interesting one. New Age mysticism has tried to make out angels as being healing spirits. Well, I don't need them. Because Jesus is a healer. There is one that the Bible talks quite a bit about. I need to spend a minute or two here. Angels do not bring new revelation from heaven to us. There's a lot of people going around, particularly in charismatic and Pentecostal world, claiming to have a revelation from heaven that an angel gave them. They're in good company. Joseph Smith has started. The Mormons tried that one too. The Bible specifically warns us about trusting so-called angelic revelation. Specifically warns us. This is too small for you to read up there. Galatians 1, 6 to 9. Paul writes into Galatians, who've been turned away from the gospel by, by, by Jewish myths and all sorts of things. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, because it means there there can't be another one. Everyone tells it's false. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be damned. As we have said Before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Our English equivalent, damned. Colossians. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions which he has seen. See how angels and visions get connected there? Taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated with that cause by his fleshly mind. In other words, this didn't come from an angel, this came from his human nature. Not holding fast to the head should have a capital H, it means Jesus, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. See, posing as an angel from heaven 
is in fact a demonic ruse. 2 Corinthians 11.14 Even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. People claim they've got it's not in the Bible but an angel told me. I go <laughs> swap that's another one for the sly fly swatter. I'm not having a millisecond of that nonsense there. Here's an old Puritan writing. Nothing's new under the sun. William Spurstow from the 1600s. Fallen angels exalt new revelations and miracles while putting down the scriptures. Do you get that? Oh, it's not in the Bible. And ordinary ministers of the church. New revelations appeal to people's pride by making them think they are closer to God than others. Our Lord Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, truly God, truly human, has spoken His word to us. The Father has commanded from heaven, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to Him. The Holy Spirit brings back to our minds all that Jesus has taught and commands us, commanded us so that we obey him. So here, I, let me put my foot down here. I am not open. I am not available to a new revelation or a new anointing. Because the same gospel about this same Jesus and the same Holy Spirit reminding me of the truth is all I'm going to need this side of resurrection day. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. As God had no greater message than his son, he had no further message beyond the gospel. Let me tell you what angels do. Not what they don't do, what they do. The angels of God serve the heirs of salvation. That last verse that we read from Hebrews 1. Are there not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels serve. They do not reign. They only serve. Jesus reigns alone. The angels serve him. John Brown says the angels are called ministering spirits. They are not governing spirits. And our reward for following and obeying our Lord Jesus is that one day we will judge angels and rule the earth. They serve us, but they serve us not at our direction, not at our call, but at the Lord's instruction. If the Lord Jesus chooses to send an angel to help to bring about an answer to our prayers, that's his call, that's his business. We do not pray to angels, we don't instruct angels. We don't tell them to come and do this and come and do that. They're his to command, not ours. But they do serve, by his command, the heirs of salvation. Here's a few New Testament examples going through. Again, it's better in the notes than on the screen. In Acts 10, 1, 10, too many white appear to the disciples and watch Jesus go from them. In Acts 5, 19, an angel of the Lord wakes the apostles in prison, who've been... Um, in prison, put there, and he leads them out. In Acts 8.26, an angel of the Lord sends Philip to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. 
In Acts 10, an angel tells Cornelius to send for Peter so he can hear the gospel. In Acts 12, an angel wakes Peter by kicking him in the side in prison and leads him out of the prison. Peter was sleeping soundly and he's going to be executed the next day. But, you know, an angel wakes him up and leads him out of prison. In Acts 12, an angel from the Lord strikes Herod with a fatal illness because he didn't give glory to God. In Acts 27, an angel of the Lord appears to Paul as he's on a boat heading to shipwreck. And that's great, isn't it? The angels of God serving the heirs of salvation. You see that history there. Let me give you two examples. If I call them modern day, they are from the last century, but I, I'm from the middle of the last century. You understand? So, I'm going to give you two examples from people I've known personally. There's another book, some, somebody's book and whatever. You know, it's like, we all, we all t- want to believe things we read in books, but you know what? Some of them made up. There was a controversy a little while ago that a book that had been made a certain individual famous, Evangelical Alliance investigated it and found out that most of his so-called biography had been made up. Most of his biography had been made up. You've got to be careful who you believe. But I met and knew the people I'm referring to today. Two stories from people I've known personally. Earlier on in the clip that formed part of what Jack was saying, the guy was holding a book called God's Smuggler by Brother Andrew. I knew a man in the Midlands who worked with Brother Andrew smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe. And this was... Hey, I'm going to scare you with the dates now. This was the, this was the late 1960s. All right. And I was about 11 or 12 at the time. And Jim, who was from the Midlands, was a Bible smuggler. And on a particular journey, Jim had been delayed on his journey. And it was very late when he got to a Czech town and he dropped a case of Bibles with the pastor there and quickly drove away. You see... It was too dangerous to even stop and, 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 and talk and pray or, or, or have a meal or a meeting. Can you imagine? you just got to drop this case of Bibles and go. As he drove away from the pastor's house, he realized two things. One, he was running out of petrol and he'd lost his way. He had no idea where he would find a petrol station open at that time of night. In this, uh, this is in the Cold War. This is, this is, this is before the fall. You know, this is 1960s, middle of the Cold War. And how he was going to find his way to the expressway that would take him to the border and back to safety in the West. Because every minute he spends in Czechoslovakia, he can be stopped, he can be arrested, he can be in prison. As he was driving, his petrol gauge was getting even lower saw a man by the side of the road and the Holy Spirit said to him stop and ask him for help and he argued but I don't know he is I could you know he might be the Holy Spirit urged him stop now ask him for help so Jim stopped and spoke to the man the man got in and gave him direction to a petrol station which was open. And when they got there, the man stopped Jim and said, Now, when you, can, when you leave the petrol station, you need to go this way and this way and this way, and you'll be on the expressway. And that will take you across the border into Austria. So Jim 
got out of the car and began to fill the petrol tank. And when he'd finished, he shut the petrol tank in and he, he, he kind of... Jim was six foot two, six foot three, big guy. He kind of got down a bit to sort of say, I'll, I'll, I'll drop... Where is he? The man had not got out of the car. And yet he wasn't there. That was not the only occasion when Jim and other people who were engaged in those dangerous times were helped by such angelic messengers. Then I knew two men who'd worked in the Congo. Willie Burton, who's one of the first missionaries to the Congo. Right back in the 19... Or 1920s, I guess, is when he started. And then Joe Robinson, who was there from the 19, late 1950s or 60s through to carry on from Willie. And, and both men had a connection to the church that, that, that I went to from Bible College and where I met Carol when she came from Gloucester. Full Gospel Hall, East Ham. They had a connection there, and so I got to know these men. I can't remember whether it was Willie or Jim who told me, uh, uh, or, or um, sorry, Joe, who told me this story. But one of them did. Face to face. I believe them. As the gospel spread across the Congo, whole villages believed and turned to Christ. But this was not always welcomed by their neighbours. The old enmities between villages and tribes were now amplified by those who held to the tribal religion, seeing the people who had become Christians as traitors and enemies. When one village turned to Christ, another village nearby sent them an ultimatum. Renounce Jesus and return to the traditions or we will come and kill you. And they set a day when they would come to hear the reply. The day came and the whole village gathered under a roof shelter among some trees which, they, which served as their church building. I've, 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 I've led meetings in similar church buildings in Africa too. The women and children were in the centre, surrounded by the men looking out. And after some hours, the men saw the warriors from the other village arrive, armed with spears and machetes. And they, they stood in a kind of half circle around the edge of the village perimeter and looked and then they spoke to one another. And then they looked again and again at the Christians huddled in the shelter. And then these, these, these warriors were arguing with one another until somebody who was probably was in charge made a decision and they, they, they turned and angrily walked away. And after some hours had passed, the villagers decided they'd return to their homes. And many days passed before some men from the Christian village came across some of their intended killers at the market town, when obviously both villages were taking produce down there. So the men from the Christian village said to these intended killers, why did you walk away that day? And the men replied, where did you get the money to hire those big African warriors who stood around your shelter? In the new covenant, the angels of God 
are not mediators and messengers as they were under the old covenant. That's the message of Hebrews. The old has gone, the new has come. We now have the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus is better. What is Jesus to us? The law was mediated by angels, but Jesus is our mediator. He's our mediator. Angels aren't mediators. If they once were under the law, they are not now. Jesus himself uniquely is our mediator. Three times in the book of Hebrews, he's the mediator of a better covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant. But here's the scripture from 1 Timothy, which completely just pins it down. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Okay, let me, let me bash some folklore again here. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not a mediator. Angels and saints in heaven are not mediators. Neither are priests on earth, even if they call pastors, mediators. There's no one between a Christian and Jesus. There's authorities, leadership, care that Jesus places in his church, but I am not your access point to heaven, nor am I the only way that God's going to speak to you from heaven. That's a mediator. Only Jesus is mediator. That's why I reject altogether all priestcraft. When someone said, what do you feel about women priests? And Jesus said, oh, my problem is priesthood. The fact they're called priests. Though, I, you know, the other thing is an issue. Jesus is our one and only mediator between God and man. We pray to him, we receive help from him. Jesus has in fact made access to God directly for us. And Jesus himself intercedes for us. But these are things that come further on in this letter. Here's the things that it says about Jesus just in the verses we just read. He's our eternal king. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's our eternal king. And then it says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. Heavens are the work of your hands. They'll perish, but you remain. You will be, they'll become old like a garment, like a mantle. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you're the same, and your years will not come to an end. His kingdom has, an, no, has no end because God is the eternal one. Then he's the righteous king. Which means this, he will always do what is right. His kingdom is one of uprightness, complete justice. Now the fact is, we don't even understand justice because somehow, somewhere along the line we're always going to excuse ourselves over something. But Jesus is absolutely just. Then he's the anointed king. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That's not the anointing with the Holy Spirit Jesus received in his baptism, which constituted him Messiah, anointed one. It's really his installation. Think of a coronation as king in the heavenly realm. He endured the cross for the joy that was set for him, before him. And when Jesus ascended to his Father, he entered into his joy. He's the reigning king. Jesus' Father said to the Lord Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies 
a footstool for your feet. That's a quotation from Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Eight times. Starting with the Lord Jesus himself. Matthew, Mark and Luke record that in debating with the Jewish authorities, he argued this. David wrote about someone who was his Lord and yet Yahweh made that Lord this promise. So who was it above David to whom the the Lord, Yahweh, was making this promise. David's, who was David's Lord? Now they, they knew the answer. The answer was Messiah, but they didn't say so, because then they're acknowledging this. Jesus reigns at the Father's right hand until every enemy is placed under his feet. All opposition resistance against him will be defeated and ended. We sometimes feel the battle to be very fierce, certainly. My summation of these last few decades is, 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 is we've, taken, we've, we've been more on the back foot than the front foot in this country, particularly. By the way, did anybody see the, I sent a tweet out, kind of Facebook thing this week, an article in the Daily Telegraph, I don't read the Telegraph, but it came through the internet. In 15 years, China could well be the most Christian nation on earth. What is God doing? See, the outcome of Jesus' victory, the outcome of Jesus' kingdom is absolutely certain. Corinthians puts it this way, Paul writes to Corinthians, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. But listen, believer, Christian, today. He doesn't just reign over us, he reigns in us. His reign of righteousness and peace and joy is something that can be delivered into our very hearts. He can give us righteousness, he can give us peace, he can give us joy through what he's already done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. And as he gives us the Holy Spirit, He, the Holy Spirit will lead us into and fill us with righteousness and peace and joy. And those things are linked. You can't say I'll have that, but I'll not have that one. Thank you very much. It's really one whole way of life. Righteousness, joy and peace are one whole way of life. Righteousness is right relationship with God through Jesus, which leads directly to right living. In the same way we say for shorthand, living comes out of believing. When you have right relationship with God through Jesus, your life begins to be adjusted to righteousness, to an upright, godly way of life. And peace is the contentment with this whole new relationship and way of life. And joy is the enjoyment of this relationship with God through Jesus and this whole new way of life. Contentment and enjoyment. Peace and joy. Paul writing to the Romans sums it this way. The kingdom of God isn't about what you eat or drink or don't eat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy 
in the Holy Spirit. I'm almost done. God's going to lead us in breaking bread. Do you live under the kingship of Jesus? Is he your mediator? Is he your master? He's going to reign until every enemy is under his feet, so please don't, don't, don't determine in your heart you're going to be one of his enemies because you're a, you're a loser. The world will eventually be overthrown by him. But we make it our daily business to gladly submit to him. What are the signs of his kingdom over us and in us? That we live in right relationship with him and as Christians with one another. We live in contentment. We live in enjoyment of relationship with him and the life that he gives us. Let me suggest to you this morning, these things I write down sometimes because God gives them prophetically. Let me suggest to you, any one of you this morning, that if there's an area in which you are particularly struggling, it's probably the one you're not actually submitting to Jesus. You need to give it up. You need to hand it over. Because when he is Lord the righteousness, peace and joy will flow. And we don't need any new revelation or word from heaven than what we received already from Jesus. We have his gospel, but we do need to know 